Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. I did uh, preach from this verse last Sunday, but it is a bridge verse that brings us into uh, the next section and actually in, becomes an interpretive point for the series of verses that we're going to be reading. So I had to bring it back again this week. And so let's read these verses, see it in the broader context. Verse 14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he, he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for our own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself. But only when called by God, just as Aaron was. was. I uh, wanted to ask, what, what is a priest? We often will use a term and we associate a lot of meaning to it based on past experience, perhaps, but maybe don't really fully grasp what a priest is. And, and as you see, I have a slide there that kind of informs some ideas that our culture has, and um, if you are from a Catholic or Orthodox tradition, you probably will, you know, think of uh, long robes and uh, dark robes, stoles, crucifixes, incense, mitre, a crosier, things like that, that kind of like emblems that signify that this person is, is set apart for a task. And depending on your life experience, you likely associate a memory or emotion or interaction perhaps that you've had with a religious priesthood. Now, I'm talking about the priesthood of the Catholic Church here, but those also the reality is that in the Protestant tradition, the pastorate has often been a place that people look at as being a form of a priesthood. But a pastor and a priest may have profound influence upon a person, uh, either positively or negatively. And I would hope positively, um, particularly for myself. I do know that a fly in the ointment, unfortunately, can cause many of us to throw out the whole ointment. Uh, the, whole, the ointment might be okay, but you've got that stinking fly in there, and you just don't want to even look at it. And uh, the reality is, is that, unfortunately, there have been a lot of bad experiences that people have had. Jeffrey Chaucer who wrote the Canterbury Tales nearly 600 years ago, uh, compiled a story of, of different characters. And there were many religious characters in that storyline, and only one of the four did he have a positive thing to say about. And that was 600 years ago. It was the parson. And actually, the parson in the Canterbury Tales actually had a consistency of character, which thankfully is also found in Jesus Christ. 
There are no perfect pastors, there are no perfect priests, but there is a perfect Savior, and we can give thanks for that. The biblical term, though, priest, is something that befuddles us, and incidentally, in its very original usage, was very similar to the word presbyter or elder. Nevertheless, the word priest has continued to correspond to those sacraments or those um, duties which belong to a set-apart priesthood, and so they tend to associate that concept. And actually, in the text that I read this morning, there's a really good definition of what a priest is. Did you see it? It's in verse 1 of chapter 5. Just look at it again. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That is a really, really good definition of what a priest historically, biblically meant. Um, And since we are sinners, I think it's important for us to realize that we have to have someone act on our behalf in relationship to God. Our sin has put us in an adversarial position to God, and we need somebody to go in between us and God. And in this text, there is an elevation, there is a a heightening sense of the greatness of Jesus and how, how, how great He is and how important it is to hang on to Him as a great high priest. Because in this text, I believe the emphasis here is that Jesus is a great high priest worth holding on to, come what may. The temptation of the people under trial was such that it would be easier for me just to live as a Jew and not cling to Jesus. And what the writer here is saying, no, Jesus is a supreme high priest that you've got to hang on to. And he gives reasons in this text. And honestly, as we look at this text, I think we find some amazing application for us as we look at this text. Um, In several points, I was moved personally in my office this week as I was studying this and convicted of just how desperately we need Christ and the mercy that He offers. Now, in the broader context, He's giving us three reasons. I'm only going to hold on to two this morning. Two reasons why Jesus is a great high priest worth holding on to, no matter what may come. And the two reasons, uh, and the first is that Jesus is able to mediate our human condition. Verses 14 to 16 highlight this very important truth. Jesus is able to mediate our human condition before God. Now, in verse 14, the phrase, pass through the heavens, ought to provoke our imagination. How does one pass through the heavens. What would it be like to pass through the heavens? To be able to go between two worlds. You know, this is the basis of a lot of sci-fi, right? And we might be tempted to just simply kind of move quickly past this phrase 
and not take a moment to realize what's being communicated. Um, The ascension of Jesus Christ was a movement between two worlds. He passed through the heavens into the very presence of God. It's a marvelous, marvelous occurrence. Jesus, who we saw yet a little while here on earth, passed back into the heavens in the presence of God. Now, it's important for us to see what He was doing in the passing into the heaven. Because He had spent time with humanity, He's now able, as a priest, to act on behalf of men in relationship to God. That's what a priest does, and that's what he's going to be doing. That's what he's doing even now at the right hand of the Heavenly Father. We sometimes don't really feel the weight of the need of a mediator, someone to act on our behalf, to pass through the heavens as much as we ought to. I was studying this text, and I was remembering how last summer Drew was teaching Sunday school, or maybe it was the summer before that. It was a memorable lesson. It came back to me. And he and I had a discussion about, you know, what a mediator does. What does it mean? And it was a very helpful lesson that he had, and and a definition of what a mediator was came out of the life experience of Job. Job, like Jesus, suffered innocently. But Job, not like Jesus, complained. Job didn't understand why he was suffering. He, he didn't have a, a, way or a way to hold on to it and understand it. And um, he started to complain to his friends. And he expresses to his friends his wish and desire to take God to court, to stand in his presence and kind of reason with him and say, you know, there's got to be a misunderstanding here. I haven't done anything wrong. I'm suffering. And uh, he just concludes that there's just been some misunderstanding here. Now, in that setting, that's almost humorous to kind of envision him talking about just God having some sort of misunderstanding as if God didn't know what he was doing. But Job didn't really understand and so, he, he thought that maybe he could clear things up if he could talk with him face to face. But how do you talk to God who is majestic, who's transcendent, who's, who's passed through the heavens? How is that possible? That's a pretty serious barrier. How can he plead his case with God? This is what Job said. Listen carefully. He's realizing the foolishness of what he's saying, and he says, for he is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There's no arbiter between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. Now, Job, in this little passage, is recognizing, you know, he can't take God to court because he's simply a man. But if there was someone who could step in 
and lay hands on both and bring them together, then maybe there could be some understanding. That's what a mediator does. A mediator brings two sides who, who, who are at desperate differences and brings them together. What he's asking for is the ultimate translator. What he's actually asking for, not even maybe even knowing he's asking for it, he's asking for someone like Jesus. Someone who, who can identify with his personal suffering and also lay a hand on him and then land, lay a hand on God who is the judge and bring the two sides together. This is what he's asking for. And the reality is in God's kindness... He does exactly what Job is requesting. Jesus translates the gap that exists between us and God. Jesus is the great high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. So let us hold fast to our confession. It is a beautiful picture. Jesus really shared our humanity. He successfully shared our human experience, and that's what we find in verse 15. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. I have to comment on a word, the word sympathize. It's a useful word, but we can't actually, perhaps we associate the word empathy with it more than we actually understand what the word sympathize means. Empathy is more of a psychological adaptation. You may not really have experienced what the other person has experienced, but you try to put yourself into their shoes, you, but the reality is you're not really able to suffer exactly as they have suffered. It's because you've not shared the exact same experience. And the word sympathy here doesn't connotate empathy. It connotates sharing the exact same experience. Uh, not long ago, I had a conversation with someone who had lost their spouse in a very tragic accident here in the county. And they expressed how painfully unhelpful it was for people to express a sympathy when they, in fact, had not actually shared the same experience. Now, I agreed with her. And I was in that moment saying, I said to her, I I can't, I can't say that I have shared your exact experience. But I have my mother-in-law who has experienced your exact experience. My mother-in-law also lost her spouse in the very similar accident and at the very same age as she had. In other words, my mother-in-law had shared the exact same experience. And in the case of the Son of God, 
who came into this world, he was born in a manger, he shared in our exact human experience. In other words, he fully participated in every stage of life within a frail human body. He was in every respect tempted, and you know what? He successfully overcame those temptations. Jesus grew up, you can just think about this, He grew up with all of the temptations of our own youthfulness, and He never once fell. What kind of temptations? He had the temptation to disrespect His parents. He had the temptation to fall into sexual fantasy. He had the temptation to vulgar talk. The temptation to be idle or lazy. Even later in his adult life, the pride of life was offered before him in the offer of the kingdoms of this world by Satan himself. He was offered the quick and easy way to get to the goal. You think about it, in every respect, he met temptation and he refused, though, to deviate from his father's loving will for his life. I have to point out something that's very subtle here, but I think it's worth doing because it emphasizes a very significant point. There is a play on words in this text. The phrase, in every respect, sounds like the word confession that was used in the previous verse. Every respect and confession. They're both built on the word same. In other words, Jesus is worth holding on to because He was faithful in every respect. And so, we can hold on to Him with the same degree of faithfulness. We can hold fast to our confession because He's worth holding on to in every respect. In every respect, He followed His Father's will. This is the confession, and this is what should draw us into following in every respect. And Jesus never broke faith with God. He was wrapped in frail humility. He lived, He endured hardship. Now, Immediately you might say, well, that doesn't seem very comforting. I think most of us in our human experiences have met up with successful people, and what have we found of successful people? We see pride. We see arrogance. We see people who actually don't care. They have little compassion. That's our human experience. The more successful a person is, the more judgmental they tend to be. But that didn't happen to Jesus. He experienced our human condition, and He successfully endured the temptation, and now He doesn't judge us. What does He do? He gives mercy and grace 
to help in time of need. Our human tendency is to kind of lower the bar. Jesus kept the bar very high, but yet he descended to meet people where they are. Jesus successfully navigated the human condition, but you know what? He successfully won mercy in place of judgment. This is what verse 16 is telling us. Verse 16 uh, says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus was without sin, but he gladly gave himself up to be bruised so that others could be spared. See, the invitation here in verse 16 is absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. And this, is, this really ministered to my, my soul this week. <sighs> to my shame, there have many times when an attitude of pride has come into place in my own heart where I have been successful in navigating temptation and my heart actually moves to judgment of others. I may have been able to keep God's law, but too many times I've not had a merciful spirit for prodigals. And I can probably safely say that there are many among us who have also had the same experience. But this is the Spirit of Christ. Jesus was the high priest. He was the one who was faithful to keep all of God's law. But it didn't fill him with pride. And in keeping all of God's law, it caused him actually to have the ability to forgive those who were repentant and wanting to turn from their sin. I pray that God's Holy Spirit would create the same kind of concern the same kind of concern to honor the law of God, but yet also have mercy and grace for those who seek forgiveness and turning from sin. That is essential for the followers of Christ to be like Christ. Look, I'm going to skip down just a minute down to verse 2 because you see a little bit of this, this, this sentiment. God's original purpose for priests serving other human beings was that they would be able to be compassionate, to be merciful. And in verse 2, it says, he can deal, this, this, this human person representing other men, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weaknesses. And I think of, this was the ideal, this was the goal, this was the, where, where God intended things to go. But there were many priests throughout Israel's history who, who did it so poorly. Eli was one of those priests. You remember Eli when Hannah came to the temple to pray with her, with her husband, and she was in internal agony over, over her barrenness, and she pled with the Lord, and she was mumbling with her mouth at the altar, and, and she was probably weeping. And, and Eli came to her, and you know what he said? How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. That's a terrible priest. 
Jesus, on the other hand, had a tenderness. He said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is our great high priest. He gives his weak and weary sheep what they need. Jesus, yes, was holy, but this holiness caused him to have a merciful spirit. Holiness ought to cause us to have a merciful spirit as well. The opportunity is available for all who will call upon him. You will find mercy if today you hear his voice and you do not harden your hearts. This is the first great reason. Jesus was able to understand our human condition. That's why we ought to be holding fast to Jesus and not letting Him go. The second reason is that the honor of high priest is given to Jesus, the Son of God, only. It's only been given to Him. Now, look at the next verse, next couple of verses up through verse 4. There's a a word group that kind of repeats itself and is uh, needful to be pointed out so we can interpret this. The word chosen. Every high priest chosen among men is appointed. These are selective words. And then then you also see um, in verse 4 where it says... um, No one takes this honor for himself, but only when he is called by God. This is important for us to see. This is not something that that you presume to have the capacity to do. And so, if this is true of human priests, that human priests couldn't just walk in to the Holy of Holies on their own, how much more so in this dispensation? in this time period. And so, this choice and selection applies even more so to Jesus who passes through the heavens. So, it's an argument from lesser to the greater. And what is true of lesser priests is necessarily true of Jesus. And so, in offering sacrifices for Himself in verse 3, there is an intended object lesson of humility. See, in verse 3, um, the, the priest is also a sinner, and so he has to actually prepare himself to even enter into the Holy of Holies. He's got to make a sacrifice for his own sins just as much as he has to make sacrifices for the sins of others. If you're perceptive, and I'm sure many of you are, you'll realize instantly that there is a greater comparison here because Jesus didn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself. He was holy already. And in this uh, observation, though, it was instructive to teach humility. Once a year, a high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, and that was a dangerous thing to do, especially for a sinner. They had to go in with the goat's blood at the Day of Atonement and sprinkle it on the altar and the mercy seat, and the Shekinah glory of God was radiating between the cherubim. It would be 
entirely devastating if they actually opened their eyes and looked directly at that glory. And so what did they do? They brought incense into the Holy of Holies so it would fill with smoke so that it would be like a smoke screen so they wouldn't actually, actually ac- accidentally look upon it and potentially be, be hurt, even killed. It was dangerous for a sinful person to enter into God's presence. And so, even before the high priest would enter into, a sacrifice to atone for his sins was necessary. And so, while it was an honor, and this is the point, while it's an honor to offer these sacrifices before God, representing others, it was also very dangerous. Notice in verse 4, it says, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. That's a loaded statement and demands a story. It demands a story. I can't imagine being on the very edge of the promised land. We saw the hardening of the hearts of Israel over the last number of years, or the last couple of weeks, excuse me, might feel like years. But the reality is, I can't imagine, like, telling Israel, it's like, how many, we're almost there, kids, we're almost, we're almost to vacation, and now we've got to turn around and go home. And Moses had to do that. He had to tell Israel, it's time to go back into the wilderness. And what's worse, you're going to die out there over the next 40 years. Now, that's a leadership paradigm I would not want to have to follow. But Moses went back, and on the way into the wilderness, one of the sons of Levi, whose name is Korah, rallied up opposition, and Korah brought Dathan and Abijah. They all came together, and 250 leading men of Israel and came to the tent of meeting and said to Moses these words. You ready? You've gone too far, Moses, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? Their pride caused them to think more highly of themselves than they ought to. And in their pride, they expressed their rebellious attitude toward God. And what they were saying is, we can be our own priests. We don't need you to represent us before God. Can you imagine? That didn't go very well for them. And remarkably, this story is not often presented in flannel graphs or in children's Sunday school Bible lessons. So if there are kids in here, you'll be paying attention, I'm sure. 250 of them were given the opportunity to take a go at it before God. (laughs) Moses stood up and said, okay, we're going to give everyone censors. A censor is like an incense pot that you can put in front of 
God, you can go in and you can offer this incense. 250 incense containers were given to these men. And then Moses said, okay, now everyone stand away from the tent of <laughs> the tent of Korah and these two other rabble rousers. And the ground opened up beneath them and swallowed them whole. And they went directly into hell. And these 250 people who had these censers were incinerated by fire in a twinkling of an eye. And then a plague began to break out. And as Moses sees the plague starting to break out upon the people, he instructs Aaron to take a censer and put fire on it from the altar and run out into the congregation and stand between the rebels and God. And this is a remarkable statement. You can read it in the book of Numbers, chapter 16. And it says, And he stood between, that's Aaron, stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. He turned away the wrath of God by his presence in between. And the story goes on. From there, the heads of all the tribes were instructed to make a staff and lay it in the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, whoever's staff would bud, it would be an indication of God's perfect selection of high priest. Well, among the staffs, of course, Aaron's was there representing the tribe of Levi. And his name was inscribed in the side, and his staff was made of almond wood. And the very next day, not only had Aaron's staff sprouted and put forth buds, but there were actually blossoms, and there were ripe almonds. Now, why am I telling this story? I'm hopefully trying to represent what the author of Hebrews is trying to make plain, that no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Here's the valuable point and why it's so crucial that we hang on to Jesus. If we choose not to hang on to Jesus as our high priest, then we are necessarily choosing ourselves to offer sacrifices to turn away the wrath of God. That's terrifyingly dangerous. We have a high priest who has ascended into the heavens. He is like Aaron standing in the gap between the dead and the living, between the dead and God. And if we choose not to hang on to Jesus as our high priest, then we're trying to represent ourselves before a holy God. And that's dangerous. That's the great promise that's presented in the book of Hebrews. Entrance into the rest of God is contingent upon 
Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. This is the, this is the bedrock of what Christianity is. There is seriously peril for not holding on to Jesus. I was struck in my study this week by the repetitive nature of the word hold fast. It didn't come to me until we got to this third and final, not final completely, but yeah, third hold fast statement. Back in chapter 3, verse 6, notice this repetition. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Look at verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It's the same concept, hold fast. Chapter 4, 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast. I did a quick search of the Old Testament to see if this was something that he was alluding to in the Old Testament, and yes, it is. In the book of Deuteronomy, after the 40 years of being in the wilderness, the generation that was now going to enter into the promised land, they got to hear the words of the law repeated a second time. And when Moses read those laws, he used the words, hold fast to God. In Deuteronomy 10, 11, 13, Deuteronomy 30, he said this, and I'm just going to quote one of the verses because it summarizes essentially what the other three say. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice, and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. Do you see it? The word hold fast is very significant. This word is also used in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2 at the very first wedding. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his wife and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Do you see what's being communicated? I hope you do. That holding fast to Jesus, it's a, it's a commitment for life. It's like being married. This is not something that you, you, you pray a quick little prayer when you are four or five years old. This is, this is about commitment to Christ to the very end. Now, That's scary for a lot of us. But what's so beautiful in this is that there's mercy mixed throughout, right? Jesus is the one who who overcame judgment so that we might have grace and mercy. He's worth holding on to. He's worth holding fast to. Why would I let go of that? 
Jesus is the one who's able to mediate our human condition. He understood the frailty of our, our being. And Jesus is the one who, who's worth holding on to, come what may. Come what may. When I stand at the altar with a couple, I'm encouraging them. I'm, I'm saying, look, keep these vows till death do you part. doesn't matter what comes up in your life. Hold fast to Jesus. He's worth holding on to. In fact, He's the only one you can hold on to. It's a relationship that you're being called to, just like marriage. But again... This is something that's requiring that one be born again. You'll not be able to see the king or the kingdom of God unless you are born again. But there is hope for all who do call that they might be born again. And so I pray that as we consider this text, it's on the heels of warning, but there is filled with great hopefulness. If you have called upon Him as your Savior and you, you're working through trials, you're seeking to be faithful, you want to follow Him, you can have every confidence that He is there to dispense grace in every time of need.